Continuity Podcast Live, and welcome into all of our homes. Thank you, everyone, for joining us for what is our first ever live episode of the Business Continuity Podcast. My name is James. You might recognize my voice from the second series of the Business Continuity Podcast. And before I hand over to all of our team here for introductions and to kick off the discussion, I'm going to start by doing a very quick introduction to the Business Continuity Podcast. For those of you who are new to to us, uh, and for those of you who do know us already, what we've been up to and what's coming next. So the Business Continuity Podcast, or the BCP cast, as we call it, was created by Data Barracks. We're a a disaster recovery and business continuity company here in the UK. And we work with small and medium-sized organizations, which can be relatively large businesses, but generally those that don't have business continuity practitioners of their own. And there's a, a, a mixed opinion about business continuity in, in those kinds of businesses. So what we wanted to do was to try and demystify what good business continuity is, because it's not about um, an excess of difficult models and complex jargon. Actually, when you, you speak to the people who, who really know what they're doing, they don't hide behind jargon. They're very practical people. They really embed continuity and the practices in their organizations. And overall, they make those organizations uh, much more resilient and able to deal with the kinds of crises that we're we're dealing with now. So what we wanted to do was to go and talk to these people, get their advice, uh, get their input, see what what they can tell us, what works for them, what doesn't, and what are the kind of tips that work for organisations of of all sizes. Uh, now we have we've recorded three seasons of the BCP cast so far. We're in the process of putting together the fourth fourth season now. And they're available in all of those usual places. So uh, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, at SoundCloud, on Stitcher, or you can go directly to the BCPcast website itself and, and listen to those episodes there. And it's actually been a very interesting process for us recording this fourth season of the podcast but it's because it's been going on as coronavirus has developed. The very first episodes that we recorded were right at the start of this year. And at that point, coronavirus was certainly on the radar for everyone that we spoke to, but it wasn't something that we really dwelled on. It wasn't something we spent any more time on than than any other risk that we were discussing. Around probably midway through our interviews, we popped up to see a chap called Dean Beaumont at Experian, who I'm looking forward to sharing because that's a, a really, really good interview. Um, and at that point, Experian, we're dealing with their response for coronavirus in their offices in Asia. But at that point, we hadn't seen any infections in Europe. And then only a few weeks later on, I was carrying out what was probably one of the last interviews that we've had for this season, which was with Richard McGlave of Continuity Squared. And at that point, the UK was about to go into lockdown, but Italy was already in lockdown and he was in the process of retrieving some of his staff from Italy. So in a really, really short space of time, we went from something that was a relatively minor concern to what we're dealing with now, which is the obviously the kind of largest continuity incident of our lifetimes. So we wanted to hear from the people that know best from the professionals. And with that, I'll, I'll hand over now to our four returning guests for them to give a, a kind of short introduction for, of themselves. So I'll start with, uh, with you, Richard, if you could give us a very quick introduction. 
Yes, good afternoon, everybody. So I'm Richard Bale. I'm a business continuity and resiliency consultant with Data Barracks. Previously, I was uh, with JP Morgan as the head of business resiliency within CIB for EMEA. Prior to that, uh, I was head of business continuity for BNP Paribas in the UK. Thank you. Thank you. And perhaps now over to, to you, Vicky. Um, hi, I'm Vicky Gavin. I am the cyber coach at with the Cyber Rescue Alliance. Um, I have had over 20 years of leadership experience in the business continuity information and cybersecurity space. I have on a couple of occasions now worked with the international IMF, it's not gonna come out any other way, to present how to do pandemic planning, first to global banks, and most recently to emerging banks around the globe. I'm currently working with a number of leaders in the UK, assisting them with their COVID response. Thanks, Vicky. Uh, and then Stuart, over to you. Yes, hi. I've uh, been involved in uh, business continuity and IT disaster recovery since uh, the late 90s, uh, working with a small uh, property consultancy, moving up into broadcasting, an oil and gas major, and also uh, with investment banking as well and insurance as well. It's a wide range. Quite and a few sectors there, yeah. Thank you. And, and lastly, then to you, Julie. Yeah, hi, everyone. I'm Julie Goddard. I'm a business continuity consultant with Data Barracks. I also have my own company, HumanX Resilience. Uh, I've been in business continuity for around 15 years, um, worked for many different industries, including um, food and drink. I've worked for a county council, I've worked for a regulator, information services, and during that time covered multiple different types of incident, everything from supply chain disruption uh, to weather issues to product recall. And I've also dealt with the pandemic in the past. I've dealt with swine flu, bird flu, and also Ebola when I was with the county council. Uh, so I've had extensive experience of dealing with this type of situation. Uh, I've also had, uh, prior to that, around 20 years in IT service continuity management. Thank you, Julie. And, and I'll start to say, so thank you for those of you who have already submitted some questions to our panellists. So we have a number of talking points that we're going to, to run through today. And we've got some of those questions of which I think we're probably going to hit as we as we move through. But if not, I'll, I shall put to our to our guests. But if you do have any other questions, there's a, a panel on the right hand side. Please, please pop them in. We'll, we'll see if we can get through as many as we can. But with that, I'll start with, with the first discussion point for, for today, which, Vicky, I'll, I'll throw to you first of all, which is how does COVID-19 compare with previous crises that we, that we dealt with, particularly the, the larger ones? So in my opinion, it does not compare at all. And, and that's to be expected. No two crises are ever alike. Yeah, it doesn't matter how much we speculate, um, how much we prepare, how much work we put in beforehand. Once we're in the midst of a crisis, it is unique, it is like no other, and requires a response specific to the events that are unfolding. And so let me let me pass that on then. So Julie, over to, to you. How does this compare to others that you've um, dealt with? Yeah, yeah, I, I absolutely agree with Vicky that every incident is different, and it's the reason we need to exercise because there is no out-of-the-box solution, prescriptive solution. But I suppose for me, what I notice about this current uh, situation is 
that it's so much bigger because of globalization. If I compare it to the pandemics I've dealt with in the past, like swine flu and bird flu and Ebola, this is, a, this is truly global. And it's been made more complex and difficult because of complex supply chains that we now have in place, which are limited and centralized in many cases. So the impact has been huge the world over. And that is absolutely unique, I think, to pretty much any, any incident I've ever dealt with. And the other thing, obviously, is hyperconnectivity uh, with social media, which obviously can be a great thing and has proved itself to be a great thing in this in this particular uh, situation. But I think back to swine flu and bird flu, we didn't have that level of interconnectivity. And in that way, that has been a bonus. So for me, it's the globalisation of, of, of all of this, which is unique, I think. And then perhaps if I can throw to you, Stuart, on this one. So... How does it compare for, I guess, the other crises that you've, that you've been through? Yeah, um, well, I suppose for me, uh, you've got the old military adage that no plan lasts more than two, two minutes in contact with the enemy. And uh, this is definitely one of them. Uh, you know, though the response may have very similar lines to things that you may have practiced or rehearsed in the past, I don't think anyone would have been able to grapple with the extent of this uh, current crisis. There's no one sort of scenario I can think of that I've ever planned for that would actually potentially trigger a global recession. This is a very good point. So Richard, um, I'll, I'll pass this one lastly then to you. How do, how do you think this one compares? Um, yes, I mean, it is, it is fundamentally quite different, but there are some learning outcomes that, that came out of previous pandemics. So SARS, for example, the wearing of face masks, not as a preventative measure, but as a protective measure to stop that spread to other people. That's really where we can pinpoint that particular activity coming from and, and why it's now you know, so prevalent within Asia, because that's what people were told to do at the time. And at the same time, um, for SARS, you were splitting the workforce between two different locations. So some of these things, you know, came about then. And when I think about uh, avian flu, for example, the French uh, who I was working for at the time were very keen on face masks. So I actually went out and purchased uh, several million face masks, which then uh, ended up in a warehouse in, in North London, never to be used. But we had time to do that. So it's the rapidity that this has spread that has really caught everybody out. And I think, you know, like the fellow panelists, it's the planning assumptions that we all had, which turned out to be invalid with this particular event. So, well, I mean, this leads to kind of the second talking point that I wanted to come to. And I'll, I'll, I'll start back with you again, Vicky. And that's to say, so what, considering this is something that was so unique and, and obviously the, the, the plans themselves not, not lasting first contact with the enemy, what could we have done better to have been better prepared for, uh, for something that was so unexpected? So I think Julie was the one who mentioned it first, crisis exercising. It is the way that we play out a variety of different scenarios. An awful lot of organizations don't like to do crisis exercising. It's a fairly big investment in time and resources, and nobody likes doing a role play. But at the end of the day, it's through crisis exercising that we practice those key skills that you need when you're in the midst of a crisis. And, and that decision-making, I mean, crisis decision-making is very different from decision-making during a normal working day. In a crisis, 
you never ever have as much information as you'd like and you still have to make a decision. And on top of all of that, the only thing you can count on is that at least half of the information you have is incorrect and you still have to make a decision. And so it's really important that you practice that skill of reviewing the previous actions and decisions that you've taken to ensure that in the light of an evolving situation, they continue to remain pertinent and the right things to do, knowing what we know now. Yeah, you're nodding, Julie, I'll throw to you then in that case. Yeah, yeah. One of the things that struck me about this whole situation and touching on the exercising, Vicky, is when you're exercising, is not just exercising your incident team, you should obviously involve your staff as well. And I do think some organisations make the mistake of only involving their incident team or their senior team, but also making sure the deputies are rehearsed and practised. And where did we see this in this incident? When Boris went down. Now, I'm not saying that those that stepped in for him weren't, weren't good enough or up to scratch, but it just shows that you do have to plan for lots of key staff. And that includes in part of your exercising to make sure that the wheels don't fall off just because one of the key players is out of action. And I think in hindsight, many organisations should have done their exercising on a broader scale as well. So not just with their incident team, but on a broader scale. And should have thought about this particular challenge because it's been on the government's risk framework for almost two decades. And the World Health Organisation have been talking about it for goodness knows how long because they recognise from their data, from their modelling, that this was overdue. So I think we we should, we when I say we, I'm talking about we as a, we as a com- country, as well as we as perhaps BC practitioners, should have pushed this more and should have been perhaps a little bit more prepared, including strategically when it comes to things like supply chains that might come to a halt um, where they're going across continents. So I just think, I wish personally... I would have shouted a little bit louder about it in the organisations I've been in, in hindsight, which is the question, I think. So we've, we've actually had a question come through, which I think probably is, is kind of pretty pretty pertinent to, to, to this part. And actually, I'll put this to you, Richard, because I know you, you have some experience on this. So the question is from James, which is, is pan- pandemic planning now defunct? And obviously, this is something I know you've, you've, you've worked on, on exercises for, for pandemics in the past. So... So um, I participated in the 2006 uh, market-wide exercise organised by the Bank of England. And there were 70 organisations that looked at an increasing level of absence over a six-week period. So it's definitely the longest length of exercise that I've participated in in my career. And there were lots of very interesting outcomes from that, in that you could have a very relatively low level of absence, but against a, a small critical team, you could still take them out. And it was those sorts of things that got highlighted. And I think in terms of our pandemic planning going forward, we need to think more broadly than we thought before. So we used to work on reasonable worst case scenarios. Well, this is way beyond reasonable worst case. This is all our assumptions have just been chucked out the window. So we should be prepared to think more broadly and more widely and keep reviewing our risks because there's a real danger at the moment that you could get into a double jeopardy situation where you've got not only the impact of the coronavirus reducing staff availability, but then you might get hit with something else like a major uh, cyber attack against your organisation or a fire against a property that you're not currently occupying, et cetera, et cetera. So 
the actual level of risk has gone up exponentially as a result of this uh, particular situation and we need to be very mindful of that that's definitely a, a point that i guess we'll, we'll, we'll move on to probably more a little bit later on and it was a question that we had from one of the attendees which was about dealing with incidents while you're in this crisis but i think lastly i'll just throw it to you Stuart, if there's anything else you wanted to add on what preparations we could have done to be in a better place when this began well i think going back to picky's thing of testing i mean you don't need to specifically test pandemic plan to get good learnings out of your testing that you can then apply the mid january i was uh, undertaking a test it was 50 50 do i do pandemic because it was emerging from wuhan or do I do loss of supplier? I felt loss of supply was a bigger risk to us at the time than the pandemic. Uh, when the directors then sort of late February came up to me and said, ah, you you were wrong, you should have done pandemic, you lost uh, uh, the plot and that sort of thing. But ironically, the week later, when uh, we started going into lockdown, the supplier that we did the test against was actually the supplier that withdrew its workforce. So we were left with a, a loss of supplier scenario that we had actually tested and we actually had rehearsed properly and uh, came up with a, a solution. So, sorry, my test wasn't lost. It was able, you know, as long as you can then uh, swap things around, then, uh, you know, the test is very valid. That's terrific. Thank you. Um, that was one of the learnings that I guess comes up so many of the interviews that we do, which is around uh, planning for the impact rather than the specific incidents. But Julie, is there anything you want to add on this? Yeah, or something you've, you've yeah I just asked? wanted to pick on something there that Stuart mentioned. I think it's really important. Obviously, we're all focused on the whole coronavirus situation, but it's really important that people do not take their eye off other things which could be happening in their organisation whilst they're focused on COVID. And this is the prime time when things will happen because people aren't concentrating. And you mentioned, Stuart, you know, you've got a fire or it might be a supply chain issue or it might be a cyber attack. But whatever you do, don't get so focused on cyber that you forget to lift your head up and look at what else is going on in your environment that could cause the next issue. Um, and it may not even be anything to do with COVID, but it's just because you're not particularly concentrating on what's going on in your world that you missed something that's about to hit you. So that is really important, I think. And then any other one else? Richard, anything else to add before we, uh, before we shift here? Yes, I, I just wanted to make a comment about the fact that uh, in the past, we've been really good at looking at medium to high probability events or risks. What we've been really bad about is thinking about the low probability, high impact events, such as the major floods, such as pandemic. We've, we've pushed that off because that's quite difficult to get people to sit down and, and go through because they'll go, oh, it's, you know, this is not going to happen. So we'll just risk accept. And I think that's a fundamental flaw, both amongst the risk managers and the business continuity practitioners. We should have brought the focus back in so that all categories, regardless of their probability, should be looked at thoroughly and then we would be in a better position. Okay, thank you. So I, I'm going to move on here. So we started with something relatively negative of what, what we could have done better. But how about the positive? I think there's been lots of really good examples of, of uh, organisations who have been able to, to adapt and, and to be able to continue. So Vicky, let me put this to you. What has impressed you about the response, if anything? So um, I'd, probably not one that um, would appeal to everybody. But what I've been really impressed with is the way our government have modelled appropriate crisis decision-making skills. I mean, they've taken a lot of hits for it in the news, but 
they had to make decisions with limited information under pressure and they made the best decisions they could. And then we've seen them week on week revise those decisions in the light of new information coming in. I mean, that's, that's exactly what we expect crisis leaders to do. Um, and, and I've been really impressed that, that they have had the courage to model that on TV to the world. So perhaps, Judy, then for you, any other examples? What's, what's gone well? No, I was just going to agree with Vicky, actually. And it's interesting, the general public will not be aware of incident management and therefore might moan a bit about the process because they don't understand it. But my goodness, those of us that are in the world of business continuity and resilience absolutely get what it's like to be in an incident when you've only got half the information and the, and you, and the world is changing under your feet as you're making those decisions anyway. So I think, I'm not saying they haven't made mistakes, but I think people should cut them a bit of slack. But that's due to the, the general public not necessarily understanding how incidents work, whereas those of us in the world of BC and resilience do. I think the thing that's impressed me most is how much business models have changed overnight in some cases. And one of my previous organisations that I used to work for were very, they were very office based, really, they due to a cultural issue, really, more than anything. But pretty much overnight, they've rolled out 160 laptops to staff and got them up and working. And the business is adapted really quickly. It's not been without its issues, for, for instance, contact centre telephony, which it wasn't geared up to be um, set up in, in a remote environment. They've had to um, put in some mitigation around that until they could get a proper solution in place. But all in all, their, their whole world has not collapsed. And I think there's lots of organisations that have used their uh, initiative, their ingenuity, their, their creativity to come up with solutions. And I think that's really, I think the business, the business sector should be proud of their response. And obviously, uh, you know, the business, the business, the commercial environment don't get much of a say in all this, but I do think they've done a great job in keeping businesses running where they've needed to. And also lots of examples of organisations helping each other out you know, even even competitors helping each other out. So I think there is a sense in this that everybody's in it together, which has been really great to see and has helped us all, and has helped us all no end, I'm sure. So Stuart, let me let me ask that to you then. So what's what's impressed you? What have you liked that you've seen? Um, well, yeah, yeah, I think for me, really, it's the critical national infrastructures held up wonderfully, especially the internet. Um, now, I remember just before the lockdown, undertaking a bit of research to see whether or not the uh, internet would hold up to home working. And well, I mean, apart from one small outage that I've known uh, or <laughs> heard about uh, a couple of weeks ago, it's held up really well. Also, the other thing is, you know, you've got the civil service and local government employees, people who normally just don't even get a look in on things, are, have actually been working 24-7, stepped up during uh, reduced man hours and things like that and uh, working numbers. And they've actually just responded and they've not heard anybody from the civil service uh, sort of moan about, you know, how, how hard it's been. I mean, I'd, I'd hate to think about the Treasury having to suddenly uh, work out how furlough schemes work and how, um, you know, tax back to companies work and things like that. And that must have been a nightmare for them to do, given the fact that the revenue is a, a money collecting organization and now it's a money giving organization. It's it's flipped on the coin on a handbrake term. And I think that's just wonderful how it's been able to respond like this. 
Fantastic. Thank you. And, and then Richard, anything for you to add? Anything that you've, you've uh, been impressed by? Yes, I, I think you know, the levels of ingenuity of people, the, the, the can-do attitude that, that's come through for in many uh, cases has it been great. Just to give you a little example, I've been working on the pandemic committee of my local golf club. And uh, we, we published uh, yesterday a return to work, uh, sorry, return to golf guide, um, which is a five page document on how to uh, play golf safely in a COVID environment. Now, who would imagine uh, six months ago that I would be involved with anything like that? And we've all pulled our different expertise around you know, with the director of golf bringing in his expertise about how do you coach and, and how do you play and what's practical and what isn't from that point of view. And the committee's really pulled together. Uh, and come out with with some guidance for people, which does make a difference because the you know the the mental well being and the physical well being of people is a very important aspect that's come into this particular event, which hasn't played out this way before. I think this is a new thing for us, and to see how people are working together to try and come up with innovative solutions has been great. Thank you. So I'm going to move to one of the questions that we've had come come through, which is is something that I know sure. We've talked about once in the past, which is that what should we have in place to deal with further incidents during the COVID-19 crisis, which is obviously something that, that Richard mentioned at the, at the start here? Uh, well, for me, it's really, uh, you know, as, as soon as a, a crisis comes and you're getting just beyond that managing the crisis and you're starting to go into a stabilised view, crucial that everyone uh, looks at its risk register, looks at its horizon scan and sees potentially what's coming on. It's not just bad things that's happening about the organization, it's good things as well. A good example is um, if you're using um, a remote access solution that's coming in through the cloud, then your risk of a virus outbreak within the organization is reduced. So therefore, that means you've got an opportunity. As, as you emerge, you've got to look at opportunities and risks as well, and just to see exactly what is in front of you, because I mean, a resilient organization is one that's going to come out a bit stronger. It's uh, one that's going to be a bit more fighting, uh, but it's also going to be operating. You don't want to be the organization that's going to come out of this uh, that's not, you know, that's just coping. I've heard of three or four big organizations that were actually struggling to start with to provide a remote access to everyone, and were actually switching off non-essential workers to their remote access solution. A lot of other organizations people were working from home beforehand and this has just made them that bit more stronger because being a diverse workforce well does that mean that leaving this you you need office premises maybe you can push more people to homes therefore your opportunity coming out of this is uh, a cost-saving exercise i think we'll return to that uh, later on too that's another question that someone uh, has has asked about the change that that's likely to have on on the office and and, and what we're like when we return to normal so I'll pass this in to anyone else because I suppose this is something that's becoming more of an issue the longer that this crisis extends because it's the, the likelihood of a second incident happening during this is only going to get greater. Is, is there any, any suggestions of how to plan for that? Perhaps, Vicky, I'll throw to you. I would like to think that organisations have some form of a crisis leadership team in place leading through this crisis. Now they've probably, I would imagine, combined it with the regular operational committee because this is gonna be for the long haul. But one of the things that they should be discussing on a regular basis, and I mean, to me that would mean weekly, but at least every other week, 
is some kind of horizon scanning. What could go wrong and what would we do if it did? It doesn't have to be elaborate, but you need to give some thought to it. Yeah, just have a quick rip, whip around the table of possible solutions so that you're at least thinking about the other things that can go wrong more actively than you might by simply entering them on a risk register. Julie, perhaps we're going to throw to you here. Um, yeah, I think it's really important that organisations are reviewing their priorities because they may have changed and that might be driven by customer demand, which has changed as well. Um, because customer behaviour will have changed already for some organisations as a result of this. So it's really important that in terms of returning, they are understanding what's important for the organisation right now, which might be different to three months ago and might be different to six months time. And also that they aren't rushing to get people back into the office just because the government has said that they should get them in the office because you've got to model it for what your business needs. And if it makes more sense to keep some people working at home because you're spreading the risk, for instance, if we do have a second wave or if there's a resurgence and they have to go back and lock things down again, I think it's really important that organisations look at, based on what, just we were saying, just Vicky and Stuart saying, look at the risk, but look at the priorities. And actually, what is it sensible to do right here now, right now? And if we had to wind back, because the government have to backpedal because we start seeing a resurgence. What does that mean? And how can we minimise that pain, having learned what we've learned already from where we've got to this stage? So it's just a case of treading carefully, I think, and being agile and flexible to what might come next, because nobody knows what's coming next. And it's, you know, it's, it's uh, difficult to even anticipate, really, where we might be in, like, six months' time. So the key is be on point ready and as Becky as Vicky said you know you, you should have a team now that maybe were originally just a crisis response team they are now your operational resilience team and almost your strategic team for how do we carry this forward whilst at the same time looking out for opportunities to develop the business and diversify and I have heard about businesses who have diversified as a result of this so they've found an opportunity to do what they normally do in a different way or to a different customer or using a different method, that's part of being that part of their creative thinking. And it's great that organizations are being creative like that and not just kind of treading water to keep the head above water, as it were. There's a question that's come through that I was going to hold back until the end, but um, I think you've, you've kind of touched upon something here. So I'll, I'll put this to everyone. It's uh, The question is, uh, did the panel feel that this is a tipping point for creating true operational resilience, which obviously has been a, a major discussion point in the industry for a while? Richard, I'll throw that to you. Well, undoubtedly, you know, whenever we have a major event, it brings it to senior management's attention and they're focused on it and they'll throw resources at it and until it's, quote, fixed. Um, but I think, you know, just picking up on, on the last discussion point, something I saw in the 90s when I was helping organisations recover from being bombed out by the IRA, you get incident fatigue. The longer this thing goes on, the the more the energy drains away and the more the focus switches on to other things. So I think given the nature of the pandemic, where I think realistically, you know, a vaccine is 18 months, two years away for the general population, we should be thinking about successive waves of infection to a greater or, or lesser extent, uh, probably with some localized clustering in certain areas so therefore you could see quite restrictive measures being imposed in you know one location but not another 
So consequently, um, we need to be thinking about that and try and avoid incident fatigue. So you need to rethink about the way that you do your organizational resilience. But if you come through that and you become flexible and, and adaptive in, in the way that we've been talking about, then that will be the new level that you'll take you to at the end. Yeah, I mean, just be clear, you know, this is this whole thing that we're witnessing, which we'll look back on in, in 10 years time and think this is a whole system trying to rewrite itself. It's it is. It, I mean, I'm talking about society. I'm talking about business. I'm talking about everything. And when you're in that situation, although it is difficult and challenging and obviously tragic in this case, it is an opportunity for for us to rewrite what we're doing and actually build in resilience. This is the time we give, we're being given an opportunity here to, to, to get it right for the next time. and We shouldn't miss it. You know, all the lessons that are being learned, all the creativity that's going on to try and get us through it, it shouldn't be lost. And I, and I hope it isn't. And I hope that, that we all come out of this stronger on the other side of this as a result. Thank you. So, let me, yeah, through to you, Vicky. Um, do, do, is organisational resilience a good a good term? Is that our question whether it's something that everyone is everyone is in favour of or, or or preferring the the you know BC? I mean, in terms of terminology, I don't care. We could call it apples. We can or call it oranges. Um, as Shakespeare said, a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. And and I think, or I'd like to hope that when we get to the end of this. When we have that opportunity to look at the lessons learned, one of the things we'll learn from it is what changes we need to make in order to become truly resilient organizations. We have, have clearly responded to the crisis at hand um, and, and some had things in place to make it go more smoothly and others have just been very, very creative. So, you know, each organization will have to look at the lessons they've learned from this incident and and make decisions about the kind of organization they want to be in the future. So let's let's continue with that. Then I think that's a good point. So in terms of lessons learned, um, let me throw to, to you, Stuart. What have uh, what have you learned, whether it's for yourself and your organization or, or what you've seen from others? Well, I suppose back to the old adage of uh, testing, testing, testing. And I think what's happened for me is um, this crisis has given uh, a huge sort of uh, boost to the fact that, you know, a test has to be done. It, you know, there are valuable learnings to come out of it. The other thing is, is uh, just really uh, the agile approach to resolving incidents as well, um, because uh, you know, if you were to, to stick by the playbook and just say, well, you know, we'll do this and then that and not question at every level, then that means that you're not going to recover. You're not going to, to get over the next incident in the same way as you would in this one, where effectively, I think for about 99.9% .9 of people, they've had to invent the playbook as they go along. Richard, let me throw to, to, to you in that case. So what can we learn from this? Well, um, many organizations uh, work on a planning assumption of an outage of about two weeks. And where that came from is the fact that the uh, business recovery providers published data years ago to show that the average invocation was five working days. So off the back of that, everybody thought, well, if we plan for a two week outage, then we'll be fine. Um, before I, I left JP Morgan, um, you know, their planning window was a month, which is 
a long time compared with many other organizations. But of course, we're now in a world where a month is nowhere near enough. Uh, and also, uh, they had a planning assumption that they could move work from one part of the globe to another part of the globe, because of course, the other part of the globe would always be available. So there are these basic planning assumptions that we will need to revalue, uh, evaluate and consider whether that's true in all circumstances. And if that's not true, then how are we going to cope with that? That's brilliant. Thank you. So we've had uh, a, a fair few more questions and a couple of other questions that were sent in ahead of time. And I'm going to try to pull, pull a few of them together. So we've, we've, we've had some that are around the length of this outage and how you were able to continue to deal with it. Some that are around the issue of, let me, let me find this, it was one of the earlier questions that we had, which was about the idea that actually, so here, most organizations have not lost people, but have, because of the lockdown, lost premises. What, what, what impact is this going to have when we go forward? So let me throw this to, to everyone then in terms of kind of future plannings. When we return to, to normal, and that seems appropriate for us to be thinking about now, uh, considering um, the announcements on Sunday and, uh, and what we're seeing this week, what changes are we going to see, both in terms of business continuity for, for us as the discipline, but also for, for businesses in general? Vicky, let me start with you again. Well, let's go with what I hope we're going to see. What I hope we see is that a real focus on the basics. You know, we, we will have been through a lot of upheaval um, and hopefully we'll have learnt the lesson that, you know, we should spend some time on our business continuity planning. Um, and, and hopefully that will become something that becomes second nature to our organizations. Regular crisis exercising robust business continuity planning, not the lip service that often gets paid to it. And once this incident is finally all over, which as we've said, could be some years in the future, a really thorough post-incident review, looking at the things that we did that worked well, what didn't work so well, what things would we like to make sure we have in our arsenal for future events um, and really learn those lessons and implement them? So I guess for me, my, my hope is that after this kind of event, that large numbers of organizations will really see the value of doing thorough business continuity management. Positive. I like it. Excellent. Julie, let me pass to you. I think it's all going to be a practical thing to start off with, isn't it? So employees are going to have to demonstrate that, that, that it's a safe working environment for employees to go back to. So, you know, there'll be the whole thing about the social distancing and how that's going to be managed, shared areas, how they're going to be managed, making sure there's hygiene uh, measures in place, such as hand gels, uh, increased cleaning regimes. If you've got a cleaning company, you should be talking to them about what they clean. And it might be that you're asking them to clean things that they never used to clean and it might have to be more thorough. And also, you must, must think about what are you going to do if you get a case on site again? Because even though we are starting to get things moving slowly, slowly, that doesn't mean there isn't going to be more cases in the workplace in future. And so organisations need to remember what they did before we all got sent home and make sure they've got an isolation room and they've got a procedure for what happens if somebody turns up on site, starts exhibiting systems, uh, symptoms, 
how are you going to deal with visitors? How are you going to deal with customer meetings? How are you going to deal with your suppliers? What has this done to your supply chain or any of you, any of your suppliers or customers now in financial difficulty as a result? And they could be key customers or suppliers which are going to drag you down with them. So I think there's lots of very practical things that organisations should be considering as they're bringing people back in. And as I mentioned on, earlier on another question, we mustn't rush this. It's important to do it proportionately according to priorities, according to risk. And don't, don't feel like just because, you know, we've had this announcement this week that everybody's going to be suddenly piling back in the office. That isn't the right way to do it. It must be considered and planned and be ready to wind it back if we announce that there's been a resurgence and the government's going to lock down again and send everyone back home. So do bear in mind that could happen. Yeah, and also I think uh, just to support Ju Ju Julie's comment there, just because the government says things are going to be open on Wednesday, it doesn't mean you have to open your workplace on Wednesday or whatever. It is a case of you do it when you feel it's right, when you've got the measures in place. It does take time. They're just saying effectively from Wednesday you may open or whatever. Richard, let me pass to you in that case. Yeah, um, one of the things that I do worry about is that uh, senior manager, managers are going to go, well, we're all working from home now, so we don't need our recovery sites anymore. Let's cancel the contracts as soon as we can. And oh, by the way, we don't need half the number of desks either. So uh, in the in the office, because we can all desk share. And what people are forgetting is that this is a very unique set of circumstances where everything has been uh, affected equally. Most uh, recovery sites are provided for people who, as organisations, have suffered an individual event. So you don't have forbearance around, for example, trading at home. At the moment, all the banks have got people trading from home because the regulators agree that's the only way we can do it. But under normal circumstances, that would not be allowed. So, you know, you can't suddenly throw everything out in, 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 the, uh, in the sense of trying to save some money because you do need some level of protection and resilience for your solutions going forward. They shouldn't be completely uh, shaped by this particular experience. Can I just chip in there? I'm going to be a little bit controversial now. So my fellow panellists, feel free to shoot me down if you like. This is only my view. I'm, I'm starting to think that we should, we as business continuity managers and, and myself as a business continuity consultant, I really feel like I should be changing my job title to be resilience consultant. And I'm not saying that we should do away with business continuity at all, but I think we'd be doing ourselves a big favour in organisations if we could rebadge and, and relaunch ourselves as resilience consultants, of which business continuity is a part. Um, and if I was the god of business continuity, I'd probably do away with the job title now and call, call everybody a resilience consultant, of which we do business continuity as just one aspect, because the continuity part is the, is the bit that you do when the resilience hasn't worked or isn't working as you would expect it to. I sometimes think there's a danger that business continuity people are just seen as people that hit that big red button when things don't go when where things go wrong, which I think we need to try and realise now, and leaders need to realise that we are more than that, and we are about resilience, not just not just hitting the big red button when things go wrong. <laughs> Thank you. So we've come to the end of time now, um, but let me throw to, to you, Stuart, then perhaps to, to the final point. So on things going back to normal, what changes do we hope to see both for BC or resilience and for business in general? 
Well, for PC and resilience, I feel that, well, we've uh, got a bigger voice at the table now. Uh, people actually realize the fact that they've spent some money, they've invested a small amount of money, and hopefully uh, for their organizations producing returns. For society on its own, uh, it's my own one, is uh, that we're going to re-establish what is valuable in society as well and it's not just going to be um you know uh, the big paid people you know we're going to recognize lots of people as being valuable members of society so positive end to today with that i will um i'll end the first uh, live episode thank you all for joining us please keep an eye out we'll be uh, posting uh, season four as soon as possible we expect them in the next uh, in the next month or so and we'll hope to carry on this conversation in future thank you all Thanks. Bye. Goodbye. Thank you. Thank you. Bye, Bye everybody.